Hello, everybody. Greetings to you from wherever you are. Welcome to this webinar in the series on post-COVID-19. My name is Tanya Charles, and I'm based at the Atlantic Institute. It's nice to see all your familiar faces. During this very critical moment, critical week, actually, in fact, critical last few weeks, we've had a series of incidents of political violence across the world, most recently in Tanzania and Uganda. And of course, today, our thoughts are firmly on the United States, where we are with our comrades who are voting and awaiting the outcomes of the electoral process that's happening there. As is custom with our webinars, we always start with a brief observance of silence for those we've lost to COVID and increasingly those we've lost to the many other injustices and inequities that are taking place all over the world. So join me as we take that moment of silence. Thank you. Thank you for that. So to the events of today, once again, it's very, very much our pleasure to host you for this discussion. And we're also here to foster collaboration across the different fellowships that are part of this webinar series not only the Atlantic Fellows, the Obama Fellows, Smith Science Fellows, those from Rhodes, as well as those from Roddenberry Fellowships. And so to the session at hand. Today, we really are asking a lot of critical questions. What do we do about systemic racism in our organizations? Is there a way for leaders to address the manifestations of racism in organizations and institutions in a sustainable and long-term manner? rising above the kind of piecemeal and responsive actions that are usually taken after a racist incident has momentarily claimed the spotlight. These are indeed some of the questions we will be addressing today with our incredible expert panel who have worked or who are working as leaders confronting racism and other forms of prejudice across the world. So with that, it is my extreme joy to introduce our first speaker, who is Elizabeth Cruz. Elizabeth leads democracy beyond elections, so it'll be really exciting to hear her thoughts on the elections underway, which is specifically the Participatory Budgeting Project's National Collaborative Campaign. Elizabeth has over 10 years in nonprofit management, research and fundraising. She started her own consulting firm, Mockingbird Strategies, where she has consulted on political organizing, advocacy campaigns, and community outreach strategies. Most recently, she founded and led Unified, a public education advocacy organization in Chattanooga, focused on improving public education by expanding public participation in the school system. I am so sure that Elizabeth's remarks will be so illuminating and connect also to the current state of political affairs in the U.S. as well. Elizabeth, thank you for taking the time. We welcome you. Over to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. So hi, I am Elizabeth Cruz. I am the Director of Democracy Beyond Elections at the Participatory Budgeting Project. As was said, I have a background in public policy, campaigning, politics, advocacy, organizing. I'm originally from Tennessee, but I've been in New York about four years now. At Participatory Budgeting, we work to empower people to decide together how to spend public money. We were founded in 2009 and have led or inspired most of the participatory budgeting, and I'm going to say PV, participatory budgeting processes that have happened in North America. And we work across the U.S. and Canada, but we have offices in New York and in Oakland. 
We were founded in 2009. And what happened when we were founded, like happens in a lot of nonprofit organizations and other organizations, is we created the hierarchical structure and we replicated systems of oppression that we see in the world, which is something that is natural, really, when you're starting a new organization and you've never done it before to replicate what you're seeing in the world. So we are at a really interesting moment right now at PVP where we're transitioning our founding ED to a new executive director. So I'm going to talk to you today about what we're doing internally and externally to change that. So as I mentioned, I'm the director of Democracy Beyond Elections. Democracy Beyond Elections is rooted in a single core principle of real decision-making power. And this relates directly to how we at PVP practice anti-racist leadership. So what do we do with Democracy Beyond Elections? So we build coalitions to advocate for and implement community-led decision-making practices. We create and pilot new models of participatory democracy, and we create tools to support implementation and advocacy for participatory democracy. So why? Why Democracy Beyond Elections? So I'm not here to tell you that elections are not important. As we know right now, in this moment, elections are critically important. But we also know that our current mode of democracy is failing the people it's supposed to represent. Um, Civic engagement and other responses to systemic issues of democracy, that we view voting as an end goal. So we have a cycle where people engage, they're mobilized, and a representative is elected. Then we lose large segments of the community. So after campaigning and pushing money into votes. And while elections and voting rights are absolutely critical, we know that focusing on elections alone won't solve the systemic inequities our communities face. We know no matter who is pronounced the next president or the next mayor or the next city council person, we're going to have to continue to fight to rebuild our country. So what if everyone had a seat at the table? We know that systemic racism is about power. So uprooting these systems We have to confront and radically reimagine power, namely decision-making power. So at DBE, this campaign was born of asking ourselves to imagine a different kind of democracy and a different kind of organization. So what would it look like if communities felt empowered and equipped to have a real voice in the decisions that impact our lives? So we're focusing on creating those conditions that allow folks to deeply engage, to participate, to directly influence and decide the realities that impact their lives. Um, That's the way we do PBE and participatory democracy. PBE and participatory democracy are not in and of themselves anti-racist, but the way that we do them and the power sharing piece and centering communities of color is how we do it. And we believe it's necessarily anti-racist. So what is power sharing? Since our founding and what we do every day externally is asking elected officials and people who hold institutional power to let go of that power and share that power with their communities in order to have better outcomes by honoring the voices of those most underserved and valuing the expertise in their own lived experience. And we realized we needed to turn that question and that vision inward. So we started asking ourselves, what does power sharing look like for our organization? So many nonprofits fall into the same trap of replicating, however well-meaning, the same systems of hierarchy and white supremacy that we set out to combat. Power over hierarchy and white supremacy have a common root in power over, and we know that leadership that is anti-racist must be focused on power with your community. In anti-racist leadership, similar to PB, people with institutional power have to let go of control which is what power over is about, control and fear. So leaning into trusting and relying the participation of the people around you or in your community. 
Which gets me back to the core principle of democracy beyond elections, community-led decision-making power that is equitable, accessible, and significant. So how we do participatory democracy. So we ensure that if you live in a community, you have a role and a voice in how decisions are made and in making them. So unlike traditional elections, which are filled with barriers to participation, community-led decision-making centers directly impacted community members and requires that folks left out of traditional election center democracy, including black communities, immigrants, formerly and currently incarcerated folks and youth are centered in both the leadership of participatory practices and their outcomes. We also need to make sure it's accessible. So are we equipping our community with tools, knowledge and information they need to meaningfully participate and significant? So are we honoring those decisions reached by community-led decision-making processes? Are they taken seriously? Are they honored and are they implemented transparently? What do we mean when we say participatory democracy and participatory practices? Mostly what we mean right now, there are other ways to do this, but we're talking about participatory budgeting, which empowers residents to decide directly how to spend a public budget and policymaking, which invites community members to identify, develop, and vote on new policy proposals. In New York and around the world, participatory budgeting happens everywhere. But in New York, we started in 2011 with four city council districts now we're up to 31 city council districts. And in 2018, we voted as a city to codify participatory budgeting in our charter, which is the first city in the United States to do that. And we also do that in schools here. So for the past two years in Brooklyn, schools have been given a million dollars to allocate through PB to make their schools more safe and supportive, but they were also allowed to propose vote on and implement policy changes to their schools. And what those looked like were changing school start and end times so that all students in the schools have equal access to after school programs and creating school safety counselors with students, teachers, administrators and their school resource officers to create an environment of accountability within their school. Also, we've seen in Phoenix, they recently voted to remove all of their school resource officers from their high schools and they've taken that pot of money and they're going to spend that money and allocate that money through a PV process. So they're allowing the students in the community and the teachers to directly decide how to spend that money to make their school safer. How does this relate back to the conversation around anti-racist leadership? This isn't a conversation just about diversity and inclusion. I will say diversity and inclusion are very important, but it's a conversation about power and privilege. So how are we not replicating those systems of power in our own organizations and in the work that we do at PVP? We've taken those principles and those practices and we're implementing them internally. So I am the director of Democracy Beyond Elections. In a typical nonprofit, that would mean that I make the decisions around Democracy Beyond Elections. It means that I talk to people, I get input, but ultimately it's codified that I'm the decision maker for my team. What we have done is we have broken down that hierarchy to create a flat team structure so that everyone on the team makes decisions that affect everyone else's work. So we use a consensus-based decision-making model to make decisions in our organization and on our team. And we're working to implement that model and that process throughout our organization to really begin to break down that hierarchy and those systems that we see in the world that we are trying to not replicate. So my question to you all is how are you sharing your power? How can you share your power using an anti-racist leadership mindset 
in breaking down those systems. So we know it's not necessarily just about individual racism, but not replicating those systems of oppressions that we see in the world. So thank you all so much. Again, I'm Elizabeth Cruz, the Director of Democracy Beyond Elections. You can learn more about our work at democracybeyondelections.org or participatorybudgeting.org. My email address is elizabeth at participatorybudgeting.org. I would love to share more about our work and learn more about your work. So please feel free to reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was really useful, insightful, Mm. practical. And I think for me, what's powerful is how you're basically challenging this idea that change comes through diversity inclusion. There's been a drive to just add diversity, add brown people, add black people, add people with disabilities and what done. But what you're doing is really going to the root of power and privilege. And it's just going to be really exciting, I think, to unpack later how you work through privilege in your organization. And you've given us some nuggets around power. And I think having even more discussion will be exciting. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure now to move to our second speaker, Betsy Hodges. Betsy was the 47th mayor of Minneapolis in the United States. And in her role as mayor, she focused on three very clear core goals running the city well, growing a great city, and increasing racial equity. Quite a challenging piece of work. Her priorities were ensuring that the city worked well for everyone and that all people could contribute to and benefit from the growth and prosperity of Minneapolis. Betsy Hodges is a speaker and writer and serves as a consultant to organizations working with cities to improve equitable outcomes for people of color. She recently served as a residential fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics. And incredibly, she's also one of our amazing Atlantic fellows based out of the racial equity program. Betsy, it's just really wonderful to hear from you always on this topic. And so I'm now happy to hand over to you. Thank you so much and good morning. I don't have fancy slides, but what I do have is a lot of energy because I don't want the moment to pass without acknowledging that we don't know the outcome of the presidential election here in the United States, and that is a moment of tension. What we do know is that no matter what the outcome is, whiteness in the United States of America has been revealed more fully than it ever has been. And so that I am sitting with because I think about white people and enrolling white people in the work of equity, racial equity for a living. And I underestimated how committed white people are to our whiteness and to the impacts our whiteness has, the racism that attends to our whiteness. I underestimated that, which was a good reminder for me that I'm still white, I'm still white. And that underestimation was based in my whiteness. And I just wanted to acknowledge all of that. I think there are probably some white people on this call as well. It's a moment for us to really realize we had four years of proof and here we are. And I know this is not a political organization. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but we are talking about race. And that is one of the key racial dynamics happening in this country at the moment. A little bit about myself. I was the mayor of Minneapolis from 2014 to 2018. I had been on the city council for eight years. In 1992, I decided in the wake of the officers who beat Rodney King being acquitted, that I could see something clearly about race and white people and whiteness and that it was a problem that we had and that we were creating for other people and that that it was my work to work with other white people on this issue and that there was a long path that led to me running for office and I was on the city council for eight years and then I ran for mayor explicitly on a platform of racial equity and not just 
talking about racial equity and what we now call anti-racism, not in 2013, thanks to Dr. Kendi. But I was explicitly talking about that, including with white people, and not just things that made white people comfortable. And Minneapolis is about 60, 65% white still but in ways that talked about changing our systems and what was in it for all of us to do that, that the continued growth and prosperity of Minneapolis and certainly the country depends on relinquishing our commitment to the racial disparities that we have. And I was surprisingly, even to me, elected in 2013 with a significant majority and mandate. We have ranked choice voting in a field of 35 people. I had a very decisive victory. And then it came to governing. And there are a number of things I learned about governing internally and externally about racial equity and what to do. And if I had known Elizabeth in 2014, you and I would have been on the phone talking about, okay, what do we do now? How do we do this well? And how do we do this right? But I didn't have you and I did the best I could. The first thing I want to note, and I wasn't able to articulate this until later in my term, but whiteness, and this is in the U.S. context, whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And so a lot of the racial equity work you see in government and in a lot of organizations is work that doesn't push the bounds of what keeps white people comfortable about our whiteness and about race. So we will do pilot projects, but we won't overhaul the budget and overhaul our budget priorities. In the school setting, and I wrote a piece in the New York Times this summer, and I used this example, which really captured people's attention. In a school setting, we are very delighted to do mentorship programs and summer jobs programs for young people of color, which is great, and those are necessary. But at the same time, we won't actually overhaul our school systems so that they serve those young people well and better in a way that their race is not predictive of their life outcome. We hesitate at that and we will resist that and change that. So that's what I mean when I say whiteness wants comfort, especially on the left. It doesn't want change. It doesn't want change. And that is what I think all of us in our organizations and institutions are facing. So often the work is characterized as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here's what you don't know about the history of race in the United States or wherever you find yourself. Here's how it works. Here's how things are. There's this unspoken climate. The unspoken background noise is, and race is about being a good person or a bad person. So stop being a bad person. And here's how. That's often how the work is approached. That approach has limited utility. You can get somewhere, but I don't think we can get all the way to where we're going with that approach because it doesn't always get at what it takes to change the systems that are in place. The systems that are in place, certainly in government, but often in our institutions and the organizations that we work with, are set up to get better outcomes for white people than for people of color. They were set up to do that. Every government in the United States of America was set up for that, bar none. And until we change what those systems are set up to do, we're going to keep getting the same results, irrespective of what the people holding positions in those organizations hold in their heart in terms of, I don't say 
overtly racist things and I don't share my overtly racist thoughts. So therefore, I am not participating in the racism of the institution. And it's like, well, I can be very dedicated to not being a jerk and very dedicated even to not committing microaggressions, which is actually important. And if we don't change what the system is actually set up to accomplish, that means change the policies, change the procedures, change the expectations, change the systems of sanctions and rewards, including promotion and hiring. If we don't change what the system is set up to accomplish, we will keep getting the same results, which is one of the reasons why, even though we have these very blue, very progressive cities all across the United States of America that have been led by Democrats for decades now, the gaps in life outcomes between white people and black people, indigenous people, and people of color in those cities remain and they persist. And it seems like a big mystery. So the goal here as leaders is we have to actually change our systems, which means we actually have to do the tough work of policy. That means something like I'm trying to think of examples of work that we did in Minneapolis. Policing is the biggest example that people think of. Policing was set up to protect the convenience and comfort and property of white people. That's the origins of policing. We have not significantly changed what policing is for. We significantly changed what we've said policing is for. It's to protect and serve and keep the community safe. But in practicality, the policies and procedures that most police departments operate under still operate to protect the comfort, convenience, and property of white people. And so some of the changes that we made, and I know this is a very controversial topic, but some of the changes that we made were changes in policy. By the time I left office, Minneapolis had a sanctity of life policy that was not just every officer goes home safe at the end of the day, but everybody goes home safe at the end of the day. And once that was in place, we could manage to it. Now, if you have managers who aren't going to manage to the policies that you put in place, that's a management issue for you as a leader. As leaders, we get to use the management tools at our disposal. As Elizabeth was pointing out, maybe change some of those management tools, but be clear what those expectations are, hire people to those expectations, and then manage to those expectations. And that's internally, you know, changing the culture and the mission of your organization internally is an important task. If you're working in government, it's your policies have impact on everybody in your constituency, everybody that you represent, your outward facing impacts. So in Minneapolis, another thing we did was we changed our public works master plan so that equity was the primary driver of every investment we made in public works, including and especially our streets and roads. Because historically, we had left certain communities behind. And certain communities means mostly poor communities of color, didn't get the same investment in roads and streets and sewers and water and streetlights that other communities got, in part because, oh, well, we're spending so much there on, you name it, housing, public safety, whatever it is, we can't spend all the money there. Well, that means communities were left behind. It was harder to get support. It was harder to get businesses to go into neighborhoods or to support the businesses that were there. They were less attractive because of the lack of infrastructure. So in the plan that we put forward and passed, communities that had historically been left behind got more money earlier in the plan to actually change systematically how we invested in communities. 
There are tons more examples that I could go through, but the key difference is the policies of your organization, the outward facing work that you do, are they designed to actually change the results that the system is designed to get? That is the key takeaway. Often people focus on the hiring, diversity, equity, and inclusion. If we just have three more Black people on the board of advisors, that will change everything. And as Elizabeth beautifully pointed out, it doesn't change everything if you don't actually listen to what they have to say. I work with an organization that wanted more diversity and wanted more people of color on the board. And what we did and what I helped us do is we recruited, I think, five people of color to come onto the 10-person board. We did so explicitly saying, this is what we want to do. It wasn't like, we're going to have you here, but we're not going to tell you that you're here because we're concerned about having voices of color at the table. We're just going to be silent about it, which is often what we white people do. And then we bring one person in and leave them hanging. This was bring a number of people in, be explicit about what we're doing, that there's more than one voice so that there can be a whole bunch of people at the table and then listen to what they have to say. And the commitment the organization made explicitly was, we will listen to you in ways that are meaningful. And if we're not, let's do some repair. That happened. And now the membership of the organization is now becoming more diverse because that leadership change was made. The last thing that I will say is that one of the mistakes, if you're doing this work and you're doing systems change and you're doing policy change and you're changing the outcomes that your organization is designed to get, you will have resistance, particularly from white people. And that resistance will almost never, especially in organizations on the left, especially in cities, that resistance will almost never take the form of a white person saying, I want to stay comfortable, so I'm willing to let people of color have worse results, so I'm just not going to do what you're asking me to do. We almost never say that, but that's what we're doing. And so it'll look like we don't have the budget for that. Sometimes it's a management issue with staff who aren't on board with the changes that you want to make. That's where management skills come in. Sometimes it's constituencies of the organization, the membership of the organization or the board. Because what you see is when you do try and change, for example, how school systems are set up, what you see is not all, but a number of white parents from the richest part of town who consider themselves liberal and want young people of color to get a good education, just not in the school in my neighborhood, because that would inconvenience me and my child. And I'm not convinced that my child will get a good education. So I'm going to fight like crazy. But I'm not going to say it's about race. I'm going to say this particular plan is terrible. I saw this happen in Minneapolis, I think three times now. I've seen this reaction happen in Minneapolis. So what I recommend is having a strategy for resistance from the beginning. That's hard for two reasons, because for people of color, it is consequential to name whiteness and white resistance. And by consequential, I mean white people get mad and punish in a variety of ways, people of color who name that whiteness is a problem and white resistance is likely to happen. It's also difficult for white people in part because we cannot overestimate how ignorant we are about our own race, about whiteness and how whiteness operates. Operates, and we are not always aware that our resistance is rooted in our whiteness. We think it's completely rational and that if you call me racist, all you're doing is calling me a bad person instead of just pointing out systems dynamics. 
And so it's hard for us to see resistance and name it and see that that's what it is. And that's the work that we get to do is learning about how our own whiteness operates, A, so that we can stop being that way, and B, so that we can shepherd other white people through the process of change as well by being on the front lines of naming resistance, strategizing around resistance, and not letting the resistance win the day. So having strategies about resistance is important. It happens. It's going to happen. And it's not always going to be caravans of people with flags, right? Sometimes it's just going to be somebody telling you they'll have that document on your desk on Monday, and they tell you that every Thursday you'll have it next Monday for about six months. Sometimes it takes the form of, no, I'm just not going to do that. And sometimes it takes the form of, you know, we don't want to reelect you. We don't like this. This is less comfortable than we thought it would be. We're just going to hire somebody else for this job. So those are my thoughts about leading in a world where institutions and systems have been built on white supremacy and have been built on the comfort and convenience and protection of whiteness and white people. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so much, Etsy. That was really powerful and I'm sure very challenging insights into what it takes to do anti-racist work as a white person, as a white woman, where your efforts are targeted at white people. For me, I found that in this conversation around change, not enough is said about what white allyship looks like and where the need needs to go, because it's far easier to go for a march than it is to challenge white co-workers or change the minds of other white people, as you've so beautifully laid out. Your article, which I would encourage everyone to read, how white liberals block change. What I liked about it is you really talk about comfort and discomfort. And I think that's missing in the discourse that change is not going to be comfortable for anybody. It's about what do we do with the discomfort? And it normally takes two parts. It either becomes resistance or feelings of shame and guilt, or people just step out of the whole systems change process completely. So I look forward to deep diving on this with you, as I'm sure many of the participants do as well. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership in this area. It really is appreciated. And now we do have our last keynote speaker for today. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Leila Hussein, OBE. She's a psychotherapist, campaigner, global leader on gender rights. And she's an international lecturer on female genital mutilation and recognized as one of the key experts on the issue globally. She's the founder of the Dahlia Project, the UK's first specialist therapeutic service for FGM survivors. Leila regularly appears as an expert commentator on women's rights and health with articles published in The Guardian, Cosmopolitan, and HuffPost, for example. In 2019, Leila was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire. She's also part of the team behind the Gold Generation, a project focusing on the importance of the emotional well-being of activists in the field working on the issue of FGM. And of course, more recently, she was elected as the rector of the University of St. Andrews, making history as the first Black woman to hold such a position. So I'm confident Leila will have lots to say about challenging racist systems and institutions, given the work that she's been doing. Leila, welcome once again. It's over to you. Thank you so much for having me here today. And Elizabeth and Betsy, when I found out I was going to be on a panel with you, I had the opportunity to go and have a look at your work and I was super impressed. You two really are a great example of how 
white people must tackle racism, anti-racism. I think it's important. There's always this notion that it's up to black people to tackle anti-racism, but no, it's white people. It's their role to call out racism. So thank you for doing that. I was actually quite challenged in terms of what I should bring to this today. And I didn't want to do a PowerPoint about how to tackle racism. And I'm glad I didn't have to do that because the two previous speakers have done that. But what I wanted to share with you today is something that's really close to my heart, the core of my work, which is how racism has been the block in tackling female genital mutilation. Briefly, those who don't know what female genital mutilation is, it's when the female genitalia is partially or totally removed where a woman or a girl or a child, in most cases, cannot urinate, menstruate. You know, they're expected to give birth and have intercourse at some point. It's one of the worst forms of violence. And I really wanted to share some notes that I've written in terms of how COVID racism and being a woman in today's world has been currently. I wanted to share some thoughts. Again, thank you for having me today. I'm particularly pleased to be with you today because it's a critical time for girls across the world. The coronavirus pandemic has been devastating in so many ways, and especially for most vulnerable. Reports have highlighted how COVID-19 has affected girls and women, exacerbated already existing inequalities and sex-based violence. Sadly, this has included an increase of female genital mutilation and a collapse in the support available to those at risk, especially the survivors. It is vital that we collect and share information about what's been happening and campaign for better provision of services. We will be living with COVID for a foreseeable future. We must ensure that tackling FGM and supporting those affected remains a priority. Before I talk about the impact of FGM, I want to spend a few minutes talking about how the language we use about FGM is vital and how we make progress against it. We hear a lot about tradition, culture, religion, etc., But I encourage everyone to stop and think about what really happens. Girls are grabbed, pinned down against their will. Their clothes are removed, their genitalia exposed. And that's before a cutting takes place. This is violence and child abuse. In most societies, it is not acceptable to do this. But in communities where FGM takes place, there's a form of grooming to make it not only acceptable, but necessary We must challenge this. And we have to be able to say it's violence, it's child abuse. This process of grooming of false acceptance of something so horrific is very damaging. And this is especially in the case in places like Africa. But we are seeing this even in Europe and US. Emphasis on FGM and cultural tradition practices. Let's just say if a blonde white girl from the West was dragged to the floor and had her genitals cut, it would be violence and it would be child abuse. It is also violent and child abuse when it's a black or brown girl. Why is that any different? We must ask ourselves that question. Do not let people use culture and religion as a shield to hide behind. We must call up violence and challenge them to end it. And it's not just FGM. It's the only way that we oppress women's bodies and sexualities. The same grooming and blurring of reality happen around child marriage. There's no such thing as child marriage. A child cannot be married. It's abuse, it's rape, sexual assault, domestic violence. We must challenge these language. Why is it domestic violence when it's a partner or someone that you know? Again, we must start challenging them. And so many other forms of violence against women. We talk about child marriage. As I've said, it's not child marriage. How many of us work in development or work with communities where we talk about child, early child marriage every day? But we must 
challenge those holding these positions. It makes it easy for us to talk about, but also hides what's really happening so often to very young girls. Mind you, very young black girls. That's the key word here. We are ignoring black girls. We live in a world we are ignoring black girls. We must always keep the truth about what's really happening in our minds and challenge those who seek to obscure it. FGM is one of the most forms of violence against girls because of the way it's done. This is violence. It's done in public and it's done to humiliate and oppress before girls can have a chance to grow up. Everyone knows girls are cut and often for cultural practices. It's done in a public way and entire communities allowing for the violence and telling that child that their body is no longer theirs. Again, this is happening to black children. I just want you to think about one more thing. Every 11 seconds, a girl is being cut globally. Somehow we don't consider that a pandemic. Therefore, it's no wonder women, survivors of FGM themselves, are perpetrators on their own daughters. Do not talk about violence, but choose other languages. As a psychotherapist who works with survivors, I myself is a survivor of this. I've been through this. I know this is deeply emotional scar. But part of our healing as survivors is to understand what really happened to us. Part of the way we end FGM is the community to get everyone to understand this too. This is why the language we use is so important. We must be clear about what's happening. This is happening to children. Again, I'm going to repeat, black girls. But also affects and controls all of us as an activist working against FGM. Those of us on the front line fight at the core back. Unfortunately, we don't have allies. I also urge against talking about FGM being a cultural or religious practice, because as soon as we do, then we talk about community or religious leaders. There are usually men who uphold a system that rely on women's oppression. FGM is a part of that oppression, and it will not end until we tackle the whole system. Those of you who've heard me speak before, you would know I have a very famous saying where I'm saying to people, I will not negotiate my body or vagina with anybody, especially the community leaders who are men who hold the patriarchal system. I have rights about what happens to my body, and all girls should have the right to their bodily autonomy. FGM is violent act. Laws against violence should be enforced. Can you believe in the US there are states where you can't actually practice FGM? But because of fear of offending people, especially white people being scared to challenge communities, we are letting these girls down. It's so important that we use our positions and our power to tackle these issues. During a pandemic, I've been holding weekly group calls with grassroots activists working across Africa. Hearing their updates, it was so heartbreaking in so many ways. In so many places, FGM has increased in ways I can't even explain. It's extremely overwhelming. Lockdown has meant that girls were trapped at home. Schools were closed, safe houses were shut down. Law enforcement against FGM have been patchy at best. To be honest, they've been patchy even before this pandemic. Fear of economic and hardship and uncertainties about the future have created a toxic environment where desperate families have resorted to FGM, unfortunately. Girls have been given away as brides. This should not be happening. Yet again, the reason I'm telling you this, we are talking about fighting anti-racism. All of us on this call are sitting in positions where we should be challenging these conversations because many of you on this call are white people. You hold power. Use your power. I'm glad people like Betsy are on this call who work in government. 
We need governments and local authorities to include a response of violence against women and girls in their COVID plans. They must ensure prevention, protection and support services for those at risk affected by a stream. It's a vital part that this must be direct funding and support for grassroots activities. You know, we can't keep saying we care about people of colour without investing. We are sick, including me, of those lovely statements, those in power keep making. There needs to be proper funding put in place, especially at grassroots level. We must learn lessons from COVID and make sure we do not repeat these mistakes, which put so many black girls at risk. During COVID, we started a safe space for black women. Women all over the world are now logging in, sharing these stories. I get to be in this position just to tell you it's important, especially as white people, you have to be our allies. But most importantly, you have to use your power to fight anti-racism. The reason FGM is still not considered a big issue, it's because it's systems that allow us to talk about it within the context of religion and tradition, and it isn't that. So you must, you must use your positions. We're just beginning some work with the girl generation that we mentioned before, which is an Africa-led movement, which has recently got some UK aid funding, but it's not enough. As we develop our plans for the next few years, we need partners, collaborators who share our aims to end FGM, who want to support grassroots activists, who can lead change within their communities. We need to hear ideas that come from events like this, and I look forward to hearing from many of you after our conversation. So... I want to challenge you all. How will you use your power to stand for little black girls? Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Hussein, for that really impassioned and powerful commentary. I think sometimes when we have these conversations, we forget that it's about people bearing the brunt of our inaction. And in this case, you really brought home the issue of what's happening to the black girl child. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leila, for that. Thank you. Leila, I know you've just presented and it's unusual to come back to you, but I want to share a question from your co-panelists. Maybe, Betsy, you can ask it directly or I can read it, but I think it's really pertinent on the issue of how white people respond to culture and tradition. Betsy, over to you. Thank you, Tanya. And thank you, Dr. Hussein. That was super helpful for me to hear. It's a hard topic for me to think about. And in thinking about how to effectively speak up, one of the things that white people hide behind is fear of being called racist if we speak out. That's an in issue. That's not an us issue. Mm -hmm. And part of our work is cultivating judgment about issues regarding race rather than retreating behind our fear or whatever it is. We have to cultivate judgment. Do you have thoughts about the best way to respond? You know, I'm a white person, I speak up, and then there are people who are telling me that I'm racist or culturally insensitive, that I've spoken openly about it. One answer could just be, well, withstand that and persist. Are there other thoughts about how to respond to that? I think... Those of us who resist will always be told those things. Earlier on, I think you actually did use that as an example in your talk. I think what's so shocking when it comes to FGM, this is children. My personal approach is you're racist if you don't stand up for that child because you're saying it's okay for that communities, those black girls to undergo this horrific, I mean, there's no way back from that kind of scarring. Like you're physically, emotionally, socially scarred. And I'm speaking for someone who's experienced it myself. I have a daughter myself who hasn't gone through it. And I know the battle. However, every girl deserves the same protection that my daughter received. And I think that's the way I see it. So unfortunately, I'd rather be called a racist than watch a girl undergo this. We're going to be called everything, especially if you're a female activist. 
we get called everything. We get called sluts. We get called racist. I was raised in a Muslim family, but I question Islam every two seconds. We have to. We have to. When there's a system that's oppressing and abusing anybody, I don't care if you're black, white, LGBT, we have to speak up. We have to. It's white people work. to Absolutely. And white people have to use their power here because really the stats is every 11 seconds. By the time we finish with this call, I think over 400 girls would have been cut. And that's not acceptable that we're not marching for these women. We are not marching for these girls. And it's shocking and scary. Thank you both. I'll do an unusual two-minute edition there. But I think part of that is around the difference between speaking for and speaking with. I think we have people like Dr. Hussein who are doing the work of calling out female genital mutilation. It's about foregrounding people who are doing the work. And I think that's where also it gets a bit sticky. So with that, I will now hand over to our Associate ED of Operations, Natasha, here at the Atlantic, to just wrap up and close this event for us. Thank you, Tanya. I'm going to close the event. This is the point at which we we'll normally say that we're ending the conversation. That doesn't seem appropriate, actually. It feels critical that we leave this conversation with a commitment not to close off speaking about and giving effect to anti-racist leadership. I personally have been challenged by this conversation. It's been incredibly spirited and it will continue. And I guess I'm going to leave with a challenge to myself to take a step forward after this conversation, determined not to replicate what I see in the world, focused on creating the conditions for the distribution of power. And how can I and we do this? I've been challenged to acknowledge my power and privilege, my whiteness, to acknowledge that my whiteness wants comfort, not change that it's time to call out the language, it matters, and not speaking obscures abusive practices, that's not okay. How will I use my power for little black girls and not ignore and obscure? How will I go to share power, relinquish the power that I'm hoarding, engage in participatory approaches, making spaces for those whose voices may not have been heard, who don't have the same cultural capital? We need to expect resistance will be delayed, we will be dodged, we will be refuted, we will be gaslighted and we will be denied. We need to have strategies at hand. That's the challenge that I'm taking away and I know that we'll all take away challenges of different kinds. The fundamental premise of this community is that deep systemic change, personal change, is more than the work of one of us. It requires behaviours to ensure that each of us belong, each of us is able to reconnect with what has been stripped from us by patriarchal white supremacist dominant behaviours. It requires each of us to hold ourselves to account, to go beyond inclusive practices and commit to discomfort on the way to true equity. I want to thank you on behalf of the Atlantic Institute for your spirited conversation, for your commitment to action and for your insight. And thank you, Elizabeth, for putting a link in there for more of your work. And I look forward to speaking here again another time. Thank you so much to our speakers and goodbye.